0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the mutiny on the bounty. Very, very famous incident indeed. You may have heard of it already where a uh, group of british sailors uh, mutinied while um on board the uh bounty. Yeah, kind of obvious what, what happened there. Um, pretty self-explanatory, really, when you think about it. But there's a lot going on in the story that you might not have heard about. Uh, the in, the incident itself, as I say, pretty famous. Films and books and all sorts are uh, based on it. But uh, I bet you'll learn a, a thing or two after we give it the old half ass history treatment, I tell you what. Uh, so what happened is this. 1789, while uh, on a journey across the world, the crew of the HMS Bounty, they've had it up to the back teeth with their skipper, William Bly. And as a, as a result, a bloke named Fletcher Christian led a mutiny against him. Fletcher Captain the ship and had all sorts of adventures with his mates, while Bly and his mates had to survive after being cast adrift. And as I say, there's a lot going on. There's mutiny and betrayal. There's drunken hedonism. There's survival at sea. And of course, there's horrible murder. So let's get stuck in and find out what happened with the mutiny on the bounty all those years ago. We're going back all the way to 1784 here, when the ship that actually would become the bounty uh, was first built. She, she, she started out as, as a collier, as a coal ship called Bethia. Uh, But she was bought by the Royal Navy in 1787 and converted into a cutter, which is the, uh, the smallest class of warship. Uh, Now, the Royal Navy had a very, very specific plan in mind uh, when when they made this purchase. They knew what they were going to do with the bounty, obviously renamed it uh, it the bounty. They want to sail it to Tahiti and pick up a big stack of breadfruit plants, which they then want to sail over to the Caribbean, as they reckon it'd be a big hit there as a source of cheap food. Now, Sir Joseph Banks of the Royal Society, you may have heard of this bloke, he had his dirty little fingers in a lot of British affairs uh, around the turn of the 19th century. He travelled all over the world as a natural scientist, he helped establish the Royal Botanic Gardens in London, and even had a hand in the, in the colonialisation of Australia. And as I, I've said before, he's du- as I say, he, he, he had his dirty fingers in a lot of British affairs. I, I'm not having a go at him here by saying uh, he had dirty fingers. I mean, he he he's one of history's finest botanists. So if he was doing his job right, he, he you know he, he would have had dirty fingers. You'd hope. Anyway, Joseph Banks, Sir Joseph Banks, excuse me, he reckons that it's a good idea to get breadfruit growing over in the Caribbean, and so the expedition is organised. Now, obviously, breadfruit, uh, maybe you're not 100% familiar with what this plan is all about. Again, not half ass botany, it's half ass history, and I don't understand exactly the ins and outs of this fruit, but the main reason the British want to transport it into the Caribbean is, again, as a, as a, as a, cheap, uh, a cheap food source uh, for all the slaves there. So they're thinking it's going to be an easy way to feed all of the people that are obviously working there, over there as slaves, all these poor souls over there. And so what uh, what banks organises is, is this big expedition to go and get the breadfruit from one side of the world to the other, and this involves some very serious modification to the Bounty, uh, principally the conversion of the captain's cabin, the great cabin, into uh, this enormous big greenhouse, essentially designed to fit a thousand potted breadfruit uh, breadfruit plants. Unbelievable! So you can imagine there you've all you know everyone can imagine or you've seen pictures of or recreations of what a captain's cabin looks like. Imagine that, except they're turning into a greenhouse with skylights and and and, and you know glazed windows and drainage systems, all that sort of stuff. And this is the start of the problem already already we're running into one of the problems one of the things that helped lead to the mutiny so remember that little detail there about the about the conversion of the greenhouse there anyway they picked this bloke named William Bligh to be in command of the expedition. Now Bligh was a very experienced sailor. He'd been around the world already with Captain James Cook as chief navigator, and he'd been uh, the captain of a merchant ship for a while as well. So he's definitely got a couple of years under his belt. He's thirty-three at the age, uh, age of thirty-three, but uh, by the time he's given the, uh, the uh, you know given the command of, of this new vessel, the Bounty. Now he's he, uh, see, it's difficult to say exactly what he is. He, he, he's the captain of the Bounty in the traditional sense, but technically speaking, he's not the captain. When it comes to rank, he's a little sea captain, not a big sea captain. Um, because the Bounty was too small a ship to have a command at the rank of captain, and Bligh, who, as I say, had been a big sea captain for a while now, he has to actually take a, a pretty big pay cut when he's named the first lieutenant of the Bounty. It's uh, th- th- it's to do with the size of the ship. It was so small it meant that he was the only commissioned officer. He was the only the only you know big head honcho on the ship, and there was a greatly reduced number of warrant officers. In other words, all the all the middle management there. And on top of this, to make things even worse for Bligh, and again you can see where this is heading here. Usually, Royal Navy ships travelled with some number of marines to enforce the captain's will. But again, the bounty is too small for this, and so there aren't any. There's not an onboard, you know, military presence to to make sure that the uh, the captain gets his way. In any case. A crew is assembled for the for for Bly and for the bounty with and forty six of these blokes they pile onto the ship in readiness for its departure. There's Bly, of course, and there are four warrant officers. There's a ship surgeon, and there's then there's a stack of midshipmen or young blokes hoping to climb the ranks, sort of apprentices, I guess you could call them there. And uh, Bly knows a fair few of these fellows already, as he's picked some of them himself, and he even sailed with some of the warrant officers under under Captain Cook years ago. So along with the uh, along with all these officers and midshipmen, uh, there's also a pair of botanists. These are civilians; they're not part of the Royal Navy. And they've come along to look after the plants, obviously. Uh, One of whom, his name is David Nelson, and he'd also sailed uh, with Cook to Tahiti. So he 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 knew some of the locals, he spoke a little bit of the language and and he had a good idea of uh, what what was going on in the world of plants uh, down that side of the world. But aside from the officers and the midshipmen, there's all the usual crew there's the quartermaster the sailmaker the armourer the cook and a great big load of, of of what we call able seamen as well so uh, so you know a full complement of 46 people are on board the uh, on board the bounty there and as soon as all of these blokes get on board the ship they realize very very quickly that it's a bit of a tight bloody squeeze the modifications uh, to the the captain's cabin and, and the rest of the ship of course to cater for these breadfruit plants mean that they're all living uh, they're all living in you know sort of nuts to butts here in in very in, a bit short on living space i think it's fair to say the officers have got tiny little cramped cabins for themselves. But the bulk of the crew, they've got to squish themselves in like sardines into the foxhole, which is an area that's about 11 metres by seven metres with 1.7 metres headroom. That's not even six foot. So they're really, really in, you know, as I say, packed in like sardines. So from the outset, you can see pretty bloody uncomfortable affair for them all. And it's safe to say that no one was particularly thrilled with the accommodation situation there. I think it's fair to say it's not getting many, many five star reviews on bloody TripAdvisor, I would say. Anyway, Everything is readiness for departure. Despite all of this, everything's ready for departure uh, in October 1787. But there are a series of delays that mean that the bounty isn't clear to sail until the end of November on the 28th. Now, this is a little bit of a problem because even when it does, bad weather means the ship doesn't leave British waters for almost a month. So we're well into December 1787 here uh, before the ship is even sort of, you know, it's even en route, which is a pretty bloody terrible start. Now, the plan was to sail south around Cape Horn into the Pacific by way of South America down the bottom there uh, near Antarctica, the the gap between uh, Antarctica and South America. But the late departure means that this was going to be very tricky as by the time that they sailed that far south, it would actually be approaching winter. By the time they made it to Cape Horn, it would already be into the winter months because, of course, obviously in the southern hemisphere, when we have the the, the seasons and the months arranged properly, by the time you get to the middle of the year, it's, uh, it's obviously winter, which is, of course, the way that it should be rather than summer. In any case, in any case, they're off. Bligh, he doesn't waste any time in asserting his authority over the ship. He uses Captain Cook's very, very strict approach to things like cleanliness and nutrition. Um but he apparently Bly was pretty bloody over the top with all this. Captain Cook generally regarded as, you know, a a, a, a very skilled naval captain and uh Bly is looking to to uh you know walk in his footsteps there, but uh apparently again as i say a little bit over the top you know all this nonsense bloody like a bloody cafe manager he's running around wiping tables checking on the food all sorts of stuff there like that and um in fairness there is another side to him because he also got the crew to have a bit of a sing and a dance and you know he did this quite often to keep everyone happy and exercised and, uh, and all that sort of stuff so overall Things are going quite well. They're going quite smoothly, even though Bly is a bit of a disciplinarian. You know, things are, you know, cutting along quite well there as they sail south. Bly uh, wrote back to Joseph Banks that everyone was very happy and having a great time. But the exception to this, the one exception to this bloke, uh, to this thing here, was one bloke, the ship's surgeon, a bloke named Thomas Huggan, who was both lazy and a drunkard, which is a real winner of a combination there, um, and also Bly seemed to have had. Uh, he, he seemed to have become, have become good mates with his young fella, Fletcher Christian, even uh, promoting him to his second in command above the navigator John Fryer. He, com- he promotes Christian to acting lieutenant. Now John Fryer, who was supposed to be the second in command, of the ship he didn't like. He didn't love this. wasn't a big fan of it. But uh, he took it on the chin and he got on with it. What a trooper! But Christian. On the other hand, this, this young bloke who's been promoted like this, he's bloody loving life. He's going around like the cock of the walk having a great time. Um, but that's a that's a minor detail we'll come back to because, uh, look, to be honest, things aren't going, going great as well as, you know, as, as broadly speaking, if the ship is being run efficiently and smoothly, things are not going well from a sailing standpoint. In early April, they're approaching Cape Horn, and uh, this is when the weather really starts to take a turn for the worse. Remember, as I say, they're heading into winter, the seasons. They're done properly in the Southern Hemisphere. We have winter in June, July, and August, like you're supposed to. And uh, as a result of this, the the weather is, uh, is getting a bit choppy as they head down towards the bottom of South America. The bounty tried and tried and tried to make headway further south, but this awful weather keeps blowing them off course. And more than once, they actually end up being blown back further north than, uh, than they were when they started. So finally, after about two weeks of this, Bly, is had enough. He's had enough of the weather's rubbish. He says, bugger this, boys, look, turn around, hard to bloody port. We are going to head to Tahiti via the Cape of Good Hope via South Africa instead. Now, everyone on board is a big, big fan of this plan. It means no more freezing cold South American weather. Instead, it's a, it's a nice uh, leisurely cruise through the Indian Ocean uh, rather than, you know, this bloody Antarctic chill. So people very, very happy about that. So the bounty heads off east, zipping along towards the southern end of Africa, having a great time. They make it to False Bay, which is just east. Uh, east of the uh, the Cape Good Hope uh, by the end of May. And they hang out there for a couple of weeks, you know, sort of chilling out. Uh, the ship's stocks are uh, replenished and some incidental damage is repaired. And, and Bly sends off a a, a, bun- a bunch of letters and say, this, saying this isn't a joke, what they said. They, these letters uh, explained how good of a job he was doing and how pleased everyone back at home should be, how proud of them uh, he should be. This bloke obviously had tickets on himself, i tell you what. But anyway, after a month of uh, or so of chilling in False Bay, they set off once again on the 1st of July, 1788, this time cruising into the Indian Ocean. The next leg of the, the leg of the journey was a, a long one, uh, and their next stop, of course, was Tasmania. Now, I can't imagine that that would have been very good for morale. Already we got, uh, you know, we got Bligh sort of cracking the whip and, and keeping everyone on their toes. But, uh, you know, the sailors, they think, oh, great, we don't have to go around Cape Horn, we don't have to go through the freezing Antarctic blast of wintry chill and whatever else. And then they announce instead we're going to Tasmania. I mean, bloody hell, what's worse than that? I think you'd rather just have more of this, you know, the, the freezing cold weather in a tiny cramped cabin than have to go to bloody Tasmania. Ugh. I mean, you know, they're going to, they're going to be blind and said, mate, can we, can we just skip it? Like, don't worry about supplies or whatever or fresh water. We'll just go hungry. Just don't make us – please don't make us stop at bloody Tasmania, please. Anyway, they get their no worries, under two months later and – Credit where credit is due. Bligh did a bang-up job of navigating through some pretty terrible winter weather, and he gets in there no worries. Landing at Adventure Bay on the twenty-first of August. Now, once again, they get the chance to stretch their legs on shore, and they do all the usual usual business of replenishing supplies, taking on water, all that sort of stuff. But it's here, it's here in Tasmania, that the first real cracks start to show between Bligh and some of the other people on the ship. Up until now, it had been relatively smooth. So, sa- okay, up until now, it'd be you know. Figuratively speaking, it had been smooth sailing. L- literally speaking, the sailing had been, you know, choppy as all hell. But the figurative sailing had been going as well as you could expect. There'd been a flogging or two and a couple of minus bats between sailors, but you know, nothing too major. So, when Bly gets stuck into the carpenter, a bloke named William Purcell, it kicks off a bit of an undercurrent of discontent. I can tell you this he seems to have had a real chip in his shoulder when it came to poor old Purcell, the the carpenter there, because this is the first of many issues these two blokes have. The argument, just by the way, to sort of characterise what's going on, the argument was Bly telling Purcell off for the way that he was chopping wood. Now, if someone came to me and tried to correct me on the way that I make history podcasts, I'd, well, actually, no, I'd probably listen carefully and hope to learn something because obviously I need all the help I can get. But what I'm trying to say here is that if I were a carpenter, and some bloody knob comes up to me and says, "Listen, mate, have you ever tried bloody cutting wood with the the other side of the axe or whatever?" I don't know what Bligh said to Purcell. Um, I'd be I'd be spitting chips. I'd be spitting chips. I don't know what Bly was thinking, having a go at the carpet like this. But I'll tell you this: it doesn't end well. Purcell refuses to budge. He's still using the proper end of the axe to cut the wood, and it actually takes Bligh uh, threatening to cut his rations for Purcell to finally give in and uh, and start. I don't know. Chop- I'm making that up about him chopping the. I'm sure Bligh wasn't that stupid. He's saying, "I'll oh, chop the chop the axe with the blunt end. i chop the wood with the blunt end of the axe. I don't think that's what he's doing. Anyway, anyway wasn't a great vibe wasn't a great vibe. that's my point It wasn't a great vibe to have going on the ship because i'd only got and it only gets worse after this of course obviously it only gets worse that's that's the that's half our history in a nutshell it only got worse after that um after they've set sail and they're heading towards tahiti more problems start to crop up fryer the navigator you remember the, he was the bloke who was supposed to be second in, in command he starts causing issues for uh, for bligh there he's re- refusing to shine the sign the ship's accounting books until bligh uh, you know has to really lay down the law he gets everyone out and starts reading them the bloody riot act and uh, you know trying to force him to recognise his... They don't actually. He doesn't actually read the riot act. He reads the uh, the Royal Navy's articles of war. But, you know, the effect is the same. And it, it doesn't go down too well because Bligh, he, he's turning into a bit of a bit of a, an authoritarian here. He's turning a bit of a tyrant. Um, and to make things worse, to make things even worse, the biggest problem here is actually the ship's doctor, Huggin. You'll remember that he was a lazy drunkard and uh, he actually goes from bad to worse throughout the voyage here because he's getting on the source pretty bloody hard. And uh, when he treats one of the sailors' uh, asthma... With bloodletting, the sailor actually dies of blood poisoning. Unbelievable. So this bloke, he's coughing, he's coughing and spluttering away, and and old, you know, Dr. Drunkard here, he decides the best way to do it is with some thirteenth century medicine here by giving him a bloodletting. But rather than cop to it, right? Huggin actually tells Bly, He says, "Oh, mate, yeah, no, that bloke with the asthma. No, 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 definitely, definitely didn't ac- accidentally kill kill him. No, no, not at all. He had it, he he's scurvy or something, mate. It's scurvy. Needed some of them lime stuck into him. Yeah, that was it. Uh, you know, no, uh, no, no, nothing to do with him. Me bleeding him to death or anything. Um, hearing this." Bly forces everyone, uh, because he thinks everyone's going to get scurvy, he forces everyone what I, I've learned is called an anti-scorbutic regimen, a uh, food and drink designed to prevent scurvy, which uh, obviously didn't go do, down that well with the crew because scurvy wasn't a huge problem amongst the crew, obviously, the doctor's talking down his bum. Um, but what Bly did as well is he also confiscated all of Huggins' booze, which sorted him out at least for a little bit, long enough for him to do his job properly. And uh, one of the things he does do as part of his uh, you know, his duties as, as the ship surgeon, this is very important here, one of the things he does just before the bounty reaches Tahiti is he gives all of the sailors medical examinations, which finds, and as I say, remember this because it will come up again, no sign of venereal disease amongst anyone on board. Why am I telling you this? It will come clear very, very shortly indeed. Anyway. Unlike... Dutch van Bligh Bly does make it to, to uh, Tahiti with his gang, or his, his crew, if we're going to be very specific with the terminology here, um, arriving safely on the 26th of October in 1788. Now, Bly might be you know a bit of a nasty boy, he might be a bit of a tight-ass disciplinarian here, but he is a smart bloke nonetheless, and so the first thing he does after landing is try to make good with the locals. The bloke in charge, a chieftain named Chief Tyner, actually remembered Bly they'd met before when Bly was sailing under Captain Cook. Tyner was a big, big fan of Captain Cook, and so he's pretty stoked to have Bly back for a visit. Oh, g'day, mate, how you going? to Come in, no, no, sit, sit yourself down. I'll whack a pie in the oven. Go grab a Milo for you, mate. No, no, good to see you. Very, very you know, it's been, been a while. So, you know, what's been going on? He's also pretty stoked with the deal that Bly proposes to him. He says, Bly says, I want a thousand of them uh, breadfruit fruit plants. You, you know, you got you got a million of them. You can spare us a thousand of them. China, mate, come on, mate. Come on, come on. Give us a thousand of them. And in return, I've got look, mate, I've got a whole i got a whole bloody cargo load full of gifts, you know, gifts and prezies and all sorts of stuff. That, and and, and Tynas loving it. He's loving it. He's thinking these bloody idiot, British idiots. They come here they want <laughs> all those stupid plants. They're giving me all these presents. Oh, no worries at all. Take, take, you know, absolutely take as many as you want. So Bly and his crew they get to work. Now, Christian, the second in command, you remember, he's put in charge of organising a spot on shore where all the botanists uh, can work on preparing and and potting all of these plants. Now, this is going to be a long process. It'll take months and months and months. And so the crew of the bounty, they settle in for a good old time in Tahiti. In real terms, what this essentially means is that most of the blokes from the bounty, they go around more or less shagging anything that moves, and uh, they end up getting more and more lax about their jobs uh, around the ship. They're hitting the grog, they're partying, they're getting nice and cosy with the locals, as I say, and they're generally having a bloody great time. And uh, initially, Bly didn't mind this too much because he realised it'd sort of piss off the crew much more if he tried to lay down the law. But once everyone gets used to this sort of easy breezy island living, Bly uh, has a lot of trouble, you know, sort of getting them to do even even their, their basic duties because they're off at bloody Margaritaville, Jimmy Buffett, you know, having boat drinks, whatever else, having a great time and not wanting to actually put in the hard yakka that, uh, that they're supposed to as mem- you know, as members of the Royal Navy. Now, the bloke who hit it the hardest, surprise, surprise, no prize for guessing who who the bloke was who was hitting the source the hardest, it was the good doctor, Huggin. He went at it very, very hard indeed, so hard, in fact, that he ended up dying. He drank himself to death quite literally in December, about six weeks after they landed. And as time went on... Bly became more and more of a hard ass about everything and started to order people who were particularly lazy or careless to be flogged, because so bad is the discipline amongst all of the crew that nothing's getting done. They're not actually, you know, adhering to this schedule of getting all these breadfruit plans prepared, potted up, and ready to go uh, in time for them uh, in time for a departure. Now you can imagine him going around Bla around flogging everyone, it's it's not the most popular decision he ever made. Oops. And so come January, some of the blokes actually try to they try to bugger off, they try to desert three of these fellas, Musprat, Churchill and Millwood, they nick a boat, they nick some supplies and some weapons, and they try to run away. Musprat had just been flogged and he'd had enough and he goes, Bugger this, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go and live that you know, again, Jimmy Buffett, bring it on, gonna sip sip margaritas and have a great time for the rest of my life here in the sunshine of uh, of of Tahiti. But it was no good, unfortunately. I mean, sort of it, not much came of it, unfortunately. <laughs> We could have uh, setting things up for a really good story here, but Maspred kind of uh, kind of buggered it there. They were found three weeks later, and they were flogged again for you know good measure. So Bly, Bly's consistent, if nothing else. Anyway, Bly's crackdown here. Bly's crackdown meant that a lot of the crew they did actually sharpen up eventually. Obviously, they didn't want to you know, they didn't want to have their, their their hides tanned there, and so they get up and about and they get more work done. And by February. Over a 1,000 breadfruit plants have been potted and have been transferred over to the ship. And this wasn't the only thing the crew had been transferring. I'll tell you this. Of course, they're doing the good work with the breadfruit. They're getting it potted up. They're moving it into the greenhouse, making sure all that's ready to go, transferring that to the ship. The other thing, however, they are transferring into the ship. Well, remember the doctor gave them all a clean bill of health in the um, uh, downstairs department before disembarking to Tahiti? Well, now almost 20 of the crew members have, um, uh, shall we say, they have... To the wages of sin and are having an itchy old time in their jocks, I will tell you that. So they're getting busy in more ways than one. However, anyway, you slice it, no one really wanted to leave Tahiti. That is that is the the long and the short of it. They'd enjoyed a very, very la- relaxed and pleasant lifestyle for five months as they were getting these plants ready with nice weather, good company and, and you know not a lot of work to do. But once the plants are all transferred, that's all coming to an end, right? They're staring down the barrel of months in cramped, overcrowded conditions, nowhere to escape from Bligh, you know who is becoming more and more of a, a, a crazy authoritarian here. and a lot of the sailors aren't very happy to have to walk back onto the ship and sail off. But Bligh, He's very, very keen to set sail. Everyone else dragging their feet, dragging their feet. They don't want to leave. and But, you know, obviously they finally have to. And on the 5th of April in 1789, they finally set sail away from Tahiti. They're packed up, you know, last little smoot for the Misses, the Tahitian Misses there, packed up the bags, onto the ship they go with the thousand breadfruit plants in the great cabin. And off they go, setting sail back towards Britain. However... Pretty bloody bad vibes on the ship. I'll tell you this, pretty rubbish atmosphere uh, that the bounty is sailing under there as it sets off westward there, back across the Pacific Ocean towards uh, towards the Indian Ocean there. Now, Bly seems to have gone a bit bloody mental by now, to be honest. Uh, after trying to sort of uh, wrangle a pack of horn dogs back on Tahiti, uh, he's apparently stepped up his crazy man behaviour pretty significantly. Obviously... He had these tendencies beforehand, but now there's a little bit of discontent, a little bit of, uh, you know, all this uh, this tension bubbling away under the surface. Uh, Bly is having a pretty bad time. And so what he starts doing, he starts prowling about. He starts, you know, trying to catch people doing the wrong thing. And once he does, he bellows at him. He'd bellow at someone for stuffing something up, and then he'd go back to normal, next minute, as if it never happened. Now, poor old Fletcher Christian, who used to get on with Bly pretty well, as you'd say, promoted to the uh, second in command and given all these extra responsibilities, duties, whatever else, he starts... Getting targeted a fair bit by uh, by Bligh, all of this rage from William Bly is being be, be sort of being targeted here at Christian, and, and so he's a very unhappy chappy, as you as you might imagine, if uh, you know the captain's coming down to me, coming down him like a like a ton of bricks here. And nonetheless, nonetheless, under this very tense atmosphere, they continue to sail on, and they reach modern day Tonga on the twenty second of April. Now, Christian. In Tonga, he is sent out to gather some supplies with a small group of blokes, although Bly forbids him from using any weapons with de- when dealing with the locals, who are known to be a little bit aggro sometimes. So Christian's not too happy about this. And I'll tell you this, doesn't go well for him either. Doesn't go well for Christian because the locals, as as they're as he's approaching going into Tonga, and, you know, going to try, oh, get out, mate, how are you going? You just want to grab some water, maybe some chooks, whatever else, grab them, uh, stick him on a uh, on the, on the, on big boat there. He actually gets, starts getting threatened. By these, by these locals, they Christian and his mates, they start getting threatened, and and they're actually forced back on, back towards the bounty. So they, you know, they don't get their heads smashed in. These guys have to sort of beat a, a hasty retreat there, and Bly rips Christian a new one. He calls him a damned cowardly rascal, which is some pretty bloody foul language in the 18th century. Let me remind you of that. So Bly is getting harder and harder to put up with. He's endangering his crew, sending him off to deal with potentially hostile lo- locals, forbidding them the use of weapons, and generally keep making sure doing a good job of keeping everyone very, very unhappy here. Um, and he's, as I say, getting harder and harder to put up with. As they leave the islands behind, they're heading towards the uh, the straits between modern-day Australia and Papua New Guinea, but it's here, the Christian. He's had enough of it. The last straw comes on the 27th of April when, unbelievably, Bly has a go at Christian for this is not a joke. He has a go at him for nicking coconuts from his his private supply. I think Bly, who you know is probably a few coconuts short of a palm tree in both a figurative and a literal sense here, um, he might be losing it. To be honest, he might be losing his marbles, and as a result of this alleged theft of these coconuts, right? He punishes the whole crew. And now I can tell you, Christian has had it up to the back teeth. He is so, he's sick to death of all this nonsense from the captain. So he goes to Purcell, the carpenter, who also doesn't like Bly, and he gets a bunch of wood and he starts to build himself a little raft. He's decided to bugger off, live on an island with the locals there, and again, get back, get back to that good, good Margarita, Margaritaville living. However, he's stopped by a bunch of other people on the ship. Some of them suggest that instead of fleeing, Christian, mate, how about this? Lead a mutiny. Seize control of the bounty from Bly We are 100% behind you my friend Let's get it done Now emboldened by this Emboldened by this show of support From some of his, uh, his crew members there Christian decides Oh yeah bugger it I'll tell you what Let's kick off a mutiny See how it goes eh We well, you know what's the worst that could happen So early in the morning On the 28th here Christian He creeps out of his quarters He meets up with a bunch of the other willing mutineers and he commandeers all the ship's muskets, and they all sneak up to uh, to Bly's cabin there, bloody, you know, balaclavas on, gloves on, Mission Impossible, probably not the balaclavas and the gloves, probably not Mission Impossible theme playing in their ears, but still trying to paint a picture for you here. And the mutineers, they burst into his room, and they grab Bly, and they tie his hands, and they warn him to be quiet if they value his life. They put a bayonet to his chest, and they say, mate, look, what you make one false move, and you're a dead man. Bly is a bit of a think about this. He has a think about it. He goes, oh, they've told me to be quieter. or I'm going to die. Better not resist anything. No, nope, bugger it. No, no, no. He, you know, he starts yelling at the top of his lung for someone to come in and rescue him. Now, even the people who remained loyal to Bly, however, they are not going to mess with Christian and the heavily armed mutineers as they drag poor old Bly out onto the quarter deck there. And so everyone has just sort of stood about watching on or running about trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, they've all come out for a good old look, as I say, and there's a lot of chaos as they're all trying to figure out exactly what's going on. They're running around, shouting, bumping into each other, trying to figure out which side people are on or even which side they themselves are on. But at the head of all of this is Christian. He's armed with a bayonet and by some reports even, he has this great big heavy sounding weight tied around his neck in case the mutiny went south so he could chuck himself overboard, kill himself by drowning, right? So he's, he's got a kill switch ready to go. But Bly... He's still carrying on like a pork chop. People are running around like headless chooks, yelling and shouting, and Bly is trying to get people to come and give Christian a hiding and, and release and release Bly and, and all that sort of stuff. But no one does it. No one wants to mess with Christian. Eventually, Christian gives the order that Bly and those who want to go with him, are to be let go. They're going to be set, uh, set adrift on a small dinghy. Now, the dinghy that they pull out ends up being damaged. It's not a seaworthy vessel, however. So Christian is a decent bloke. He says, no worries, mate. Don't even worry about it. We'll whack you and your mates in that big launch boat over there. That can fit 10 people easily. Now, what Christian didn't realise, however, is just how many people didn't want to stick around with the mutineers. He thought, okay, launch boat, they've got a launch that can fit, you know, 10 or so people in it, that'll be enough. But no, no, no. More than half the people on the Bounty—they don't want to be involved with his mutiny—and so they try to leave with Bligh on a boat that, as I say, was meant for just ten people. Christian swoops in and he makes some executive decisions. He prevents the carpenter's mates from joining Bligh. He prevents the armourer uh, as well, because obviously he wants these blokes uh, aboard the Bounty to help him out instead. And they're not fans of this, I can tell you. They beg to be let go, but Christian says, "No, no, no," and Bligh. He says. He turns to me. He says. He tells the. Author- he says. I'll tell the authorities back in Britain that they resisted the mutiny. He says. Never fear, lads. I'll do you justice if I ever reach England. So, all the people who can fit onto this launch, they pile on with Bly. They don't want to be part of this mutiny, of course, which is punishable by death if if, if they're ever caught again by the uh, by the British. They really don't want to be on the wrong end of that stick there. And so, a bunch of them, they pile into this uh, into this boat, and they are cast off from the bounty just like that. Now, Blind is loyalist, mates. They're set adrift in this tiny boat, but they do have, they managed to scrounge a sextant, a pocket watch to navigate with, and five days worth of supplies that they're given by the mutineers. There are 19 of them all told, leaving just 25 people behind on the bounty. And just before the lines are cut and the launch sails away, the mutineers, they chuck down a couple of cutlasses to blind his mates. But that is it. Sextant and a pocket watch to navigate with, five days worth of supplies and Four cutlasses, and these guys are left in the vast emptiness of the Pacific to fend for themselves. Bly's, uh, Bly raises the boat's very small sail and uh, and heads off towards a nearby island. He knows they can see it in the distance. There's a plume of smoke rising from the distance. They know that there's a uh, a little island called Tofua over 50 kilometres uh, away there. And Christian, meanwhile, has full command of this cutter, the Bounty, and he now has to decide what he's going to do next. And that, my friends, is where we're going to leave the story for this week. We have Bly on his launch there, trying to figure out what he's going to do. Going to go and try to head over to Tafua and figure out if he's going to be able to make it back to Britain in one piece. And Christian, living life on Easy Street. Big ship, all his, and he's got the whole, he's got the whole, all the seven seas are at his disposal. He can go wherever he wants and do whatever he wants. And next week, we will find out what what both of these blokes got up to. But that's it. That's all she wrote today sports fans. That is the story of the mutiny on the Bounty so far, and next week as I say, of course we will uh, discover what happened after the mutiny and what the ultimate fate of Captain Bligh and uh, Fletcher Christian were after this whole thing uh, this whole thing took place. So until then of course the usual uh, boring housekeeping nonsense at the end of the show halfas you can find previous episodes there it's also the best way to get in touch with the show there's a little uh, contact form uh, by which you can uh, you can contact me and I do I very much appreciate I love reading through all the emails that I get thank you so much to everyone who's uh, getting in touch with other little uh, details and uh, and bits and pieces about uh, episodes that I put out and whatever else so again thank you very very much indeed uh, to everyone who's doing that and, uh, and and of course always looking for new episode suggestions so please do send through your ideas. I've still got plenty of stickers to send out if you want them, so send me through your address and I'll shoot them through to you free of charge. that's uh, that's easy uh, th- that's easy enough. And I'd really appreciate if you uh, if you wouldn't mind just uh, you know telling people about the show. I'm trying to grow the audience just a little bit here. and if you want to uh, if you want to share the share the uh, you know the stories of uh, half with, with anyone else, best way to do that, send them through to the the website and they can uh, and uh, they can you know listen to the episodes themselves. Very exciting news as well. I finally figured out, finally figured out how to get the uh, the podcast on Spotify. Now, I'm recording this, obviously, in advance, so it should be up by now. It should be up on Spotify by now. I very much hope it is. Uh, but if it's not, I'll be troubleshooting it. But, of course, Spotify, one of the best ways to consume podcasts and certainly the way that I do it as well. So if you are a fan of uh, of the app Spotify, have a look because the half hour issue should be there now. Anyway that's enough boring nonsense from me. Of course, going to leave you, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit, this time a science question. We've talked a little bit about botany, of course, bringing all of those breadfruit plants across from one side of the world, world to the other. So a science question here posed by Reddit scientist Wisier. Does the word plant mean plant because plants are planted, or does planting mean planting because we plant plants?